This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. We go to the bottom of the fourth, and Aaron Judge is going to lead off, and stunningly, he's still getting pitched to by some teams. The 2-1. Swung on, hit in the air to deep left. That ball is high. Drive, left that field. Far. Going back. That is Number 55, double nickels. Yankees are on the board. It's 3-1 twins. Uh, it's amazing, and I mean that. Amazing, and it doesn't matter where they're pitching him or if they're pitching to him. How does he do it? I couldn't even get it out of my mouth. Why do they pitch to the guy? I, I mean, continuing to be special throughout this season. I mean, just impressive. For Judge, homer number 55. Five home runs. He's ahead of Maris's pace to get to 61. Well, he now has more home runs than any righty hitter in Yankee history. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Conventions Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Thursday, September 8th. After Matt and I each took a week off last week, we are back. We have quite a bit to talk about. We are basically legally obligated to talk about the fact that Aaron Judge is getting ever so close to 60 home runs and get into why this year might be a little bit harder to do it than all the 60 home run seasons before. The Cardinals, who are playing right now as we are recording, Yadi Molina has two home runs this afternoon already, are talking about getting the two seed in the National League, which I think is really interesting. We're going to get into that. We're going to talk about the three-team race for the American League Central. None of them have a backup plan. Win the division or bust. And... You wouldn't believe it. We're actually going to talk about the Arizona Diamondbacks, who are shockingly interesting. Zach Gallen is on a 41 and one third scoreless inning streak, and obviously Matt and I will each get into guys you should talk more about. Matt, I have a lot of thoughts about Aaron Judge, and here's my number one one. I was watching the game yesterday, a doubleheader, actually. They played Minnesota yesterday, and uh, as you may or may not have noticed, the Yankee lineup around Aaron Judge is thin. Why on earth are you throwing a pitch within 10 feet of the strike zone. Like, I can't remember the last time I thought a guy deserved Barry Bonds' 2002 treatment as much as Aaron Judge does right now. And when Twins rookie Louis Varland threw Judge a pitch that he crushed for home run 55, my only thought was, uh, Rocco, Rocco Badelli, what are you doing? He did it walking him like three times later, but why? What? Why? I had the exact same thought. It's, and I mean, but also I think the correct answer here is because it's the Twins and it's the Yankees. And when the Twins play the Yankees. <laughs> Curses are real. <laughs> the, the Twins cannot win. All right. So he has 55 home runs. Okay. And um, you actually had a great idea. And I, I thank you for it. Actually, thank you. <laughs> Why? So, sometimes editors come in handy. I know. It's rare. Um, you're like, you know, if you look at all the guys who have had 60 home runs before, it hasn't happened that much, right? Babe Ruth did it in 1927, and Maris did it in 1961. And then you had the run of Bonds and McGuire and Sosa, who did it six times in four seasons. And that's it. And we thought, well, you know, what if we looked at how baseball was different in those days. I mean, if you think about it, pitching is so much harder now. Like pitchers are faster and starters aren't used as often. And it just, it feels harder for Judge to do this than for any of those other guys. And I wrote like 
2,000 words on it, and I'm not going to read them all to you. But there's really there's two things I wanted to focus on that are the most interesting to me. The first one is obvious. Uh, Babe Ruth did not face any integrated talent. I looked this up. In 1927, do you know how many foreign-born players there were? You probably do, because you're my editor, and presumably you read my article. Um, in 1927, there were five. Five guys in the majors who were born outside the United States, including England and Austria-Hungary which as a proud history degree recipient of Boston University, I enjoyed the fact to write Austria-Hungary. Last year, in the most recent full season, 418 foreign-born players. And I was uh, I was happy to be able to look up. You could actually see what was happening in the Negro National League in 1927. Satchel Page, 20 years old, was pitching. Bolt Rogan, Bill Foster, all of these legends of the time who Babe Ruth never faced. There's like a small part of me that wants to ignore everything that happened before 1947 just because you think about the talent level and who was unfairly left out i know you can't really do that because baseball history is what it is but i put ruth's 1927 on like a different category from all the ones that came after it totally especially when we've seen the, the influx of international players in recent years like baseball didn't even really fully integrate till like the late 50s 60s you can even sort of put you know, Maris's like even even baseball in 1961 was wildly different in terms of the, where the player pool was coming from than where it is right now. So even just in terms of the player pool, even Maris, it's obviously not 1927, but it's nothing compared to what we have today. No. So the other thing that stood out to me is the way pitchers are used. Like every time I hear, let's say, a, a famous hitter from 1965 or whatever complain about today's hitters, oh, if I was playing today, I'd go against the shift and I'd hit four. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Nope. Not, not the way that the guys pitch now with the velocity and the movement. And really about the fact that starters don't go deep. So this is the most fun stuff I think I dug up here. Uh, Babe Ruth, and this applies to pretty much all of these guys, he had 35% of his plate appearances coming against starters who were pitching the third or fourth fifth time through in his season he hit uh a dozen homers off starters who were out there for the fourth time which is insane to say now do you know how many plate appearances aaron judge has against a starter the fourth time this year it's two and they're both max scherzer who's like one of the best pitchers who ever lived he actually hit a couple of homers off of relievers who were going the second or third time through this kind of goes back to the main point of you can't really compare anything that happened 100 years ago it's not quite as egregious for the mcguire sosa bonds but it, it's still different i mean baseball has changed a lot just in the last seven to ten years and i really think that if judge had gotten to pit, play against those kind of starters who are like going deep in the game he might have an 80 home run season here's the number i dug up for that uh for his career when he faces starters the first time through a 526 slugging percentage when he faces them the third time through a 664 slugging percentage now you know why he never gets to face starters the third time through because of that in that section in your story you had one stat that actually had nothing to do with any of the 60 home run hitters but i thought was really telling and i'll I'll, I'll read the section where you wrote hall of famer frank robinson for example hit 15 more homers against starters the third time through the lineup compared to the first time despite taking nearly 650 fewer plate appearances <laughs> against them like it, i mean that's the in some ways that's the, the that's the, maybe the biggest thing is like players today hardly ever get to face pitchers a third time through the lineup and when they when they do it's you know with survivor bias it's pitchers pitching their absolute best or it's the absolute best pitchers or it's the absolute best pitchers pitching their best like you gave the example of of Max Scherzer the fourth time through the order for for Aaron Judge so I think that that's like that's one thing that 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 really really stood out to me about the piece the other thing that stood out to me and this is something that's always interested me about uh 
the 60 home run seasons is how pretty much all of them previously came in or close to an expansion year. Um, and no one has really fully studied that. I, I don't think that I know of. But, like, obviously something is at play there when you consider the fact that, like, oh, the American League expanded in 1961. Oh, Roger Maris had 61 home runs. Baseball expanded in 1998. And it also expanded in 1993. And what, what, what do you know? In 1998, two guys hit more than 60 home runs for the first time. And, you know, whatever, at that point it was 30, 35 years. Like, that's obviously significant. So the fact that we're here, baseball has not expanded in well, whatever is now 20, 24 years, and if nothing, the, the talent pool has just gotten deeper and more diverse with players from more countries. In like, there's harder to get a roster spot, more pitchers coming in all the time. It's it's incredible what judge what judge is doing. And I know yeah. you might say, I know you might be saying, and this kind of goes to one of the other points. Someone might be saying, well, you know, Giancarlo Stanton hit fifty nine home runs in two thousand seventeen. That wasn't that long ago. He might as well have hit sixty. Obviously, the ball was carrying a lot more in 2017 because there was another guy who hit 50 home runs that year, Aaron Judge. He hit 52 home runs that year. So it wasn't like he was out on, like, Stanton was out on an island. Stanton, Judge this year has 55 home runs. Number two is Kyle Schwarber with 36. The gap is insane. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. It's not that hard to draw differences between the world and the baseball world of 2022 compared to 1927 or to 1961. It's a little harder for the more modern guys, you know, Bonds, McGuire, and Sosa, because, you know, the game had changed to resemble a little bit more like we see now. Uh, But obviously, they were playing in a high offensive environment. And I'm not shying away from, like, you know, using the phrase PEDs. Everybody knows what was most likely going on in those days. I'm just, I'm bored by the story. Like, I am not interested in talking about it anymore, like, ad nauseum. But what we can do is just compare the fact that that, span when they hit all those home runs i believe i wrote uh three of the seven highest slugging percentage seasons by the national league happened (laughs) in those three or four years and so what you can do is like kind of compare the baseline and you know if you look at sosa do you realize that he hit 60 plus home runs three times and did not lead the league (laughs) even one time which is like the dumbest thing meanwhile judge i mean this for the first two months of this season all anyone did was talk about how offense was down and it it is still down somewhat and like whether this is the brand of baseball you like or don't like is a completely separate conversation but like this is what we have right now and uh, at the moment he has a gap over the second place guy kyle schwarber of 19 home runs he is 55 nobody else is even 40 so he's got 55 schwarber is 36 there are only a couple of seasons in the history of baseball where the number one and two have a bigger gap and this actually made me laugh they're all babe ruth but none of them are 1927 <laughs> because Lou Gehrig hit 47 home runs that year. And I, I think I, I don't want to say like anything is guaranteed because I don't think that's true. But at this point, I would be floored if he does not at least match Maris's 61. He's got 55. There's the, Remember, the season's going to go a little longer this year. We're just under a month left. He's going to tie it and end up with uh, 64. I have been impressed because I kind of thought he'd probably stall a little bit. Just, you know teams pitching around him, sort of the pressure, the talk about it. And, like, he's just, like, it's like every day, oh, Aaron Judge homered again, Aaron Judge homered again. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think that he, at this point, it feels like he'll get it with some 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 room to to spare. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. That's going to be, like, I remember, I don't know, I don't know um, where you were. I remember 1998, it was my first week of college. I was in my freshman dorm. This is, like, there was, like, 20 of us, you know, 
huddled around like the, you, people didn't have back in my day we didn't have TVs in our dorm rooms our RA had a had a had a TV in his room and there was like 20 of us huddled around this tiny TV watching Mark McGuire hit this like line drive it was actually kind of a disappointing homer it was like a line drive down the line you kind of couldn't even see the ball I think it was off St- Steve Traxel to hit number 62 um, but it was still an amazing moment like him going around the bases and it's like you know what again this is my 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 whole rant about the whole thing Whatever you think about PDs and all that, yeah, it, it sucked a lot of the joy out of the game. It led to these endless debates. That was an amazing moment. And, like, I enjoyed that. There was, like, 20 of us. None of us were from St. Louis. We were going crazy. It was awesome. Um, and I'm looking forward to, like, I think Judge hitting 60, 61, and 62 will have that kind of that kind of excitement. You know, people forget one of the most beloved comic book characters of all time is Captain America, which is an entire story just about PEDs. That's the entire premise of Captain America. Let's see, September of 98... I guess I would have been starting my senior year of high school, and I was clearly a huge baseball fan, but I have no recollection <laughs> at all uh, of any of that happening. The, the other thing about Judge, and like I think this is this maybe applies more to Yankee fans than everybody else, because um, he's still got the, the lack of a contract thing hanging over his head. Like, not hanging over his head. Obviously, he's having a great year. He's going to make a ton of money. Um, but if he breaks the record... At the same time that the entire lineup is collapsing around him, I don't know that I can think of a bigger, like, F-U, I'm going to prove it season in the history of sports <laughs> than what he is doing right now. And uh, I think it's going to pay off for him. It was always going to pay for him, but it did, now it'll really pay off for him. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and talk about the fact that the Cardinals think they can actually get into the top two spots in the National League, which is mind-blowing to me. We'll be right back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. If you didn't get a chance to watch the Cardinals-Nationals game last night, I implore you to go back and do it. The Cardinals were down 5-1 to the lowly Nationals, entering the bottom of the ninth. And then, then what happened? Single, walk, double, ground out walk, single, walk off double. They were the first Major League team this season to enter the bottom of the ninth inning down by four or more runs and rally to win. Teams in that situation had been previously... 0 for 817, which tells you a little bit about the Cardinals devil magic that is happening right now. They are playing the Nationals again as we record. They are tied at four. Yadi Molina, who I believe had two home runs all season entering today, has two home runs today. And what has happened at the top of the National League Central has been really interesting. So on August 13th, they lost to the Brewers, and they were only up by a half a game. And it looked like it was going to be a really good and interesting race. Well, St. Louis is now up by nine and a half games. They have the third largest division lead. The division is over, essentially. And now you think about it, well, like what's next for them? They have their sights set a little bit higher. Nolan Arenado said to Derek Gould, uh, that's kind of all we've been thinking about lately is, is getting the two seed. I know we want to win the division. We're really focused on getting the two seed. 
that's our focus. And that's interesting to me because the Dodgers are clearly getting the number one seed. That's been locked up forever. Number two uh, for the two seed, the Braves and the Mets are tied right now at 85 and 51. And the Cardinals, pending the outcome of today's game, are five games out. Now, they, I believe, have lost the tiebreaker to both of those teams, so they couldn't tie. They would need to get ahead. Uh, But their remaining schedule is such a joke. They have nine more games against the Pirates, five more against Cincinnati, four against Milwaukee, three against the Padres, and then, yeah, three against the Dodgers. And, And Matt, getting out of that three seed, into the two seed i don't know if it's possible because the mets and braves are both like very good teams that's such an enormous benefit i mean you get a buy you get you know right now you're hosting the six and then you go to the two but if you get a buy you get the host maybe the mets or the braves or the padres like i don't know if they can do it but they are playing out of their minds right now i think the tiebreaker thing is like a subtle thing that really is is a is, is a problem for them that you have to kind of do a mental check in your head looking at the standings um, you're right. They do not. The, the the Braves and Mets both both own the tiebreaker over the Cardinals. So I think that really kind of is does make it a little tougher for them. There's kind of a, an, kind of an extra game hidden hidden in the standings that isn't obvious when you when when you look at them. So I don't think they can. I mean, it's anything, anything is possible, um, but I don't see it happening. That said, like it's a really good team, and it's. I mean, the Cardinals. So there's like this. There's this. Um, I was thinking about this today. There's like this famous uh, quote. By in, in soccer circles, there's a famous quote by this this f- former English legend Gary Lineker, who said, "I think it's I'm, I'm maybe paraphrasing a little bit, but the quote is basically, uh, football is a simple game. Twenty two players battle it out for ninety minutes, and in the end, Germany wins. And it's like sort of like a ha ha ha, you know, Germany always wins. And like I sort of feel that would apply to the Cardinals. It's like the National League is a simple league. Fifteen teams battle it out and every year. The Cardinals somehow exceed expectations and turn out to be much better than we thought they were. And here we are again. The Cardinals are running away with the division. They look kind of like a juggernaut. I think that like them against in a, in a series against the um, Mets or Braves would be like an extremely evenly matched series. And you know, how are they doing it, Mike? How are the Cardinals doing this again? You know don't, tell me, don't say Cardinals double magic. How are they actually I, doing it? You know what I was thinking. Do you remember the biggest Cardinals news of last offseason? Do you remember what it was? I don't. They fired their manager. They fired Mike Schilt after they'd won, was it 20 games in a row? 21, something like that, late in the season? And they, their replacement manager is Ali Marmol, who is young. He's like 35 or whatever. And here are the Cardinals doing it again. I'm not really sure whether I should take that as managers don't matter or <laughs> they made the right choice. I, I don't know. Pick, pick, pick your narrative, Mike. <laughs> yeah, um... What's what's interesting to me about this team is it feels like a real inflection point in like the 21st century history of the Cardinals, right? We know this is Yadi Molina's last year. He's come out and said that. We know this is Albert Poulos' last year. We I guess we don't know that it's Adam Wainwright's last year, but it, it could possibly be. And if you look, you know, at the guys who are driving the team right now, like Paul Goldschmidt's having an unbelievable year. He's probably going to be the unanimous MVP. I think he'll be good next year. I don't know that I'd put all my money on him repeating what he's doing now. And at the same time, you know, he's going to be 35, right? And you've got these younger guys who look like they're going to be dudes. Like we talked about Lars Newbar before. He looks fantastic. You know, you look at some of the the pitchers and we'll get to Jordan Montgomery in a second, but like they've got a really interesting bullpen full of guys. Like they've got talented young uh, outfielders. Like Nolan Gorman's been a pretty interesting guy. It feels like this is the the cross, like the overlap point, like the end of the 
previous iteration of the Cardinals and the kind of start of what the next Cardinals are going to be. Like that's you're still going to have Arenado, obviously you're still going to have Tommy Edmond and Goldschmidt. Um, but I don't know. It's going to be really interesting to see how they finish this off because, like, hypothetically, let's say they win the World Series, which they could do. Wainwright and Pools and Yadi are going to walk off into the sunlight. They are never going to look back. And I know we're getting way ahead of ourselves here. It's just it's a real interesting thing. Whereas like, you know, the Mets will probably look this very similar next year. The Braves will look similar next year. And the Cardinals, I don't think they will. And that's just what stands out to me about all this right now. Pools is still raking against lefties. Um, they're not going to really miss Pools and Yadi that much next year. Wainwright, who's still been a good pitcher, they they would miss. What's interesting about, I mean, the Cardinals, they've had a weird few years in terms of team building where, like, they've gotten absolutely fleeced in a couple of trades that have, like, really been terrible. Have we but talked made, about any of those? I don't but think they've so. made up for it by basically, like, <laughs> on the flip side, like, the Arenado and Goldschmidt trades, have they given up anything that they've missed in either of those trades? They basically, like, got two free superstars for basically trading away, like, uh, but Luke, no one they Luke will Weaver. ever miss. Luke Weaver, Carson, Carson Kelly. Gallo, like, um, Austin the one guy Gomber, the Rockies like, got. The one, no, the other guy the Rockies got, uh, I can't remember his first name, Montero. He looks like he might be a guy. You're, you're not wrong. It's just it's just wild that, like, yeah, oh, my goodness, they traded away Zach Gallen and Sandy Alcantara in the same trade for a guy that was terrible for them. But then they somehow still sort of, like, made people forget that by going and get two superstars and giving up nothing. Yeah. Oh, and then this is a good segue, trading an injured center fielder for a guy who's basically been unhittable for, for well, six weeks. We, we, we will talk about that. I will say we don't talk about that Marcelo Zuda trade enough. We talk too much about the Randy Rosarena trade and the Luke Voigt trade and all these other outfielder trades, uh, uh, Adonis Garcia. Right? We don't talk about the fact that they had Zach Gallen and Sandy Alcantara and traded him for, like, one good year of Marcelo's in it. Okay, Jordan Montgomery um, has seven earned runs in seven starts for the Cardinals, and five of those came in one game against Atlanta. He's been obscenely good, and I think part of that is a little flukish. Like, this won't last forever, obviously, but he's also made some changes. When he was with the Yankees, he threw his four-seam fastball uh, 8.5% of the time, and with the Cardinals, he's thrown his four-seam fastball 32% of the time, that works out pretty evenly to four times as often. And he talked to Ken Rosenthal about it, and I quote, I've got a good fastball. They trust me here. The Yankees didn't didn't want me throwing fastballs. <laughs> Which, um, it's weird, right? It's working. There's, like, full stop. It is working. But there's, there's a lot about his four-seamer I just don't like that much. Like, it doesn't have interesting movement. He's got a pretty good sinker that he's been throwing less of. There's, there's a part of me that thinks the ballpark is a big thing to do here because, you know, Yankee Stadium, you don't want to give up fly balls. It, Bush is death on fly balls. It's like a really good pitcher's park. So he might be going in there and thinking, well, I don't mind so much giving up fly balls here, uh, especially the Cardinals have an amazing defense, so that helps too. And then it also sounds like there's a little bit about, you know, Yachty likes to call these high fastballs where his sinker just doesn't work so he needs the four seamer to get there like i'm not trying to downgrade any of this like he's been unbelievable he's been a huge find for them and a huge embarrassment for the yankees i'm just i'm not sure what i actually expect of him going forward exactly that's that's the trick with a guy like him it's sort of like it's it feels a little bit like fool's gold as you said he's been great there's you can't like you know Say, there's no way you can you can say otherwise. You know, you mentioned the fastball. I noticed in his last start with the Yankees, he threw exactly one four-seam fastball, um, which is pretty funny. Um, I I think that, like, I mean, the trade was always weird to me from the Yankees' perspective because, like, while, yes, I'd rather have, like, they basically sort of were like, oh, we want to, we need more pitching depth. They got Frankie Montez and, like, oh, I guess we have plenty of pitching depth now. We're going to get rid of Jordan Montgomery, which doesn't make sense to begin with. Also, like, if we're talking about, like, one or two postseason starts, I'm not sure 
there's really a significant difference there. So it was always odd to begin with, but obviously that's that's worked out nicely for for the Cardinals, and he's uh, clearly been a huge reason why they've you know they've run away from the Brewers in the NL Central. Yeah, I mean, not to turn this new Yankees conversation, but it seemed clear to me they want nothing more to do with Aaron Hicks. Like they're completely done with him because you have Bader for next year as well. It's not just Bader down the stretch. It's not going to matter if he doesn't come back and play at some point. And, you know, we're kind of running out of time in the season here. All right. We have to talk about the American League Central because this is one of the most interesting division races to me right now. At the moment, Cleveland is on top of the division. Minnesota is two games back. The White Sox are two games back. So there's a real interesting three-team race here, and there is no backup plan here. None of these teams are going to get the wild card. You will win this division, or you will go home. And that's all there is to it. And there's a lot of head-to-head games uh, left, and there's a lot of tiebreaker implications here. So as a reminder, uh, this is a new thing this year. There are no game 163 tiebreakers, right? Like we've seen those in the past two teams tie. They play a one-off. Not true anymore. Those games don't exist. The first tiebreaker, the main tiebreaker, is simply head-to-head matchups. And if you look at these three teams, Cleveland, Minnesota, and the White Sox, all of those tiebreakers are still in play. So, for example, the Twins are 7-6 and six against the White Sox, so there's six games left there, including the final three of the season. Uh, Cleveland is 6-5 and five against Minnesota. They have eight games left. And Cleveland is 9-6 and six against the White Sox. They have four games left. So all those tiebreakers are still coming into play. And I think I like chaos, so I think that's what I'm rooting for. I think I'm rooting for two teams to tie and 80% of the fan base to think you're going to get a tiebreaker and then realize that's not going to happen and get infuriated by it. I don't actually care which two teams it is, but it's it's going to be two teams. That's that's my rooting interest here. Yeah, the most interesting playoff races are the either you're in or you're out playoff races and we don't really have any like the wild cards in both leagues are kind of not really giving it the, us that this year. I mean, the Brewers are four games beyond the Padres in the NL. I think the um the Orioles, after losing three or four to the Blue Jays, are four and a half out in the AL. So, like, the, this is the only, like, really good win or you're out. Now, it's going to be a team that ends up winning 85 games, and they're going to, you know, and who knows what will happen once you get the playoffs. But, like, that's that's the fun of September is, like, the, the winner go out games. And, I mean, you mentioned the Twins and Guardians having eight games. They have eight games in the next 11 days. They've got three this weekend, and they have a five-game series next weekend, <laughs> which is awesome. There'll be some chaos there. There'll be, like, you know, 87 relievers you've never heard of pitching in that game because um, they've got to be shuttling guys up from, from AAA to, to make it happen. But, yes, the tiebreakers are going to be really interesting and they'd be also gonna be a lot to keep track of those those hidden those hidden games in the standings that will kind of have to, to be in the back of our minds yeah there's a couple of things about these teams i wanted to touch on real quick uh have you noticed carlos correa's really weird runners and scoring position situation he's happening so 101 players this year have hit at least 15 home runs 101 players 100 players have at least one home run with a runner in scoring position guess who the other guy is it's carlos correa it could be a fluky thing. He's got 16 or 17 home runs. Uh, well, I looked into it. I thought it was interesting. He's going the opposite way a lot with runners in scoring position, and he's hitting the ball on the ground a lot. That might not be his choice. Like, he's getting attacked differently, you know, more sliders. So, obviously, the, the pitcher has something to do with this. There's a part of me that wonders if he's trying to go old school too much instead of just hitting the hell out of the ball, <laughs> which, I mean, if you look at uh, if, in terms of uh, plate appearances with runners in scoring position, I think he and Kyle Schwarber have just about the exact same number of plate appearances. Kyle Schwarber's got like 30 more RBIs than he does because <laughs> turns out extra base hits with runners in scoring position are really, really good. And I don't want to like get too deeply into Correa's free agent case because I know we'll talk about that a lot. He's having a really weird year. Like His OPS plus is almost exactly his career average, which 
seems fine. But at no point can I remember him just like dominating for two weeks the way I remembered him with Houston. It's it's a very weird year, and I think that with all the as you said, like well, plenty of time to talk about it. But with all the good shortstops on the market this year, who knows what's what's going to happen? You know, like there might be a world where he ends up not opting out. I don't think that's going to happen, but like it's 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 a weird one. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm the the White Sox have been such a disappointment all year. But like they're still in it. They're still they're two games out right now. Two games out, and these two teams are probably gonna. The other two teams are gonna beat themselves, beat, beat each other up over the next two, um, couple weeks, and then they get to go and play a four game series against the, the Guardians. Is it after that, or is it the Twins? Uh, I don't remember. All three of those teams are the same. It's team the Guardians. Twins. Yeah. They're, they're, then they go. Then the White Sox play the Guardians. It's gonna be a lot of fun. I mean, the 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 White Sox will pres- will get Tim Anderson back at some point. Luis Robert, they'll probably get back at some point. He's been, like, day-to-day all season, essentially. Um, and it'll be pretty fun. I think I saw Anthony Cashman's tweet this the other day. Like, the White Sox could be the, the 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 most surprising division winner who entered the season as a favorite to win the division. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's a really good line. <laughs> I like that a lot. Uh, like, a sneaky thing about the White Sox is that Lance Lynn has been great lately. Like, he came into the season, he was hurt. Then he came back and he was inconsistent. And, you know, he's had, I think, over his last five starts, he's allowed five earned runs. Meanwhile, if they make the playoffs, I'm not sure Lucas Giolito actually gets a start. Yeah, like, there's a world. Dylan Cease is clearly the race right now. Might win the Cy Young. Fun fact I learned about Dylan Cease this week. Dylan Cease, did you know that he leads the league in walk in rate? walks? Yes, I did know that. Yes. <laughs> so he, I'm rooting for him to become the—I'm assuming because Nolan Ryan did not ever win the Cy Young Award. I'm rooting for Dylan Cease to presumably, and we'll have to check the—have re- to get the research staff on this, to become the first Cy Young winner to lead the league in walk rate. It's, it's true. I, I saw someone tweet about this earlier. I'm almost certain that's true. But, like— Hypothetically, I'd say the White Sox make it into the postseason. You need to pick three starters. Dylan Cease is clearly starting game one. If Lance Lynn keeps pitching as he has, he's probably starting game two. There a world where Johnny Cueto starts over Lucas Giolito or Michael Kopech? I think no. I think no. I think no question. I, I mean, like, it, I'm not trying to be like a glib. I think Johnny Cueto is their number three starter in a playoff series, and I, th- I think I'm trying like- to be glib because I think it's very funny. <laughs> there, there's something else happening too. Well, the weird thing about their offense is they've been hitting the ball on the ground a lot ever, right? All, if you look at last year and the first five months of this year, they have the second highest ground ball rate in baseball. September, they've got the 13th lowest, so call it league average. Like I know we're talking September 8th. I'm not putting too much in the month here, um, but that's really interesting to me. Like they, They've never really lived up to their offensive potential because they hit the ball on the ground so much, and that works for Tim Anderson. Like That's, that's great for his style of game. For a lot of these guys, it, it doesn't, and that's interesting to see. You know, like we we've kind of criticized them a lot, and I kind of am going back to what Kastrovin said because God, that's perfect. Like I picked them to win, and now I'll be shocked if they win. That's that's Chicago uh, in a nutshell for you. There's something else happening here too, right? There's going to be an interesting strategy decision at the end of the year. I don't think this is actually going to happen because no manager will do this. Um, but the the number three seed is going to be the third division winner, right? And I know the Yankees have been playing terribly, but it's going to be Houston 1, Yankees 2, one of these three teams, number three. I think the division winner in the American League Central is a weaker team than all three wild cards, right? Tampa Bay, Seattle, Toronto. I would take all of those over any of these teams. And then if you get into like the last day or two of the season and you're one of the wild card teams and you're thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, do I want to play the four seed or the three seed? Do I want to play Tampa Bay or potentially Minnesota? I I think I know what I want there. And 
I don't think there's a world where any manager says, guys, don't try to win. That's not going to happen. But you get down to the last day of the season and your ace is lined up with like a playoff seat on the, on the line. I think you think pretty seriously about not burning him and being fine with the lesser seed if that's how it's going to work out. So it's an interesting thought exercise as we sit here. It's hard to imagine a team acting on it, especially it just feels like you're tempting fate the entire time unless the, the Orioles totally fall out of it. Um, in which case then like, but the thing is all three of these teams, Toronto, Seattle, and Tampa Bay are all going to be battling to be the four seed. So they're going to be trying to win games because they want to get the four seed so they can host the wild card game. Because if yes. there's any two teams that are in, the team, the two teams probably most incentivized to host wild card games are Seattle, who hasn't had a playoff game in 21 years. So if they if they make the wild card but don't get to play a home game, it'll be kind of a buzzkill. And the Blue Jays, who like we've talked about this a bit, like kind of have an extra home field advantage in the playoffs if like they're unvaccinated players who can't go to Toronto if they have a home game. Like if they're hosting Seattle and like Robbie Ray can't go, maybe he, maybe he's changed his his vaccination status since early in the season. Very possible, but like. <laughs> it could be could prove to be significant. So, like the teams most motivated to get that four seed are Seattle and Toronto. So, I think that they will be they will be trying to win until the to, until the bitter end. Yeah, I have to acknowledge what I'm sure Toronto fans are saying right now. It's like, but we have a disadvantage because we can't trade for those guys. We couldn't trade for Paul Goldschmidt. Or that's true. But in this in the context of this series, yes, the trade deadline has passed. I totally agree right. with you. But in the, the trade deadline has passed. Now you might as well take advantage of it. <laughs> All right, that's going to be a really fun race. Our third topic here uh, is actually Arizona, the Diamondbacks. We don't talk about them that much. Zach Allen is having an amazing run, 41 and a third straight scoreless innings. That is the eighth longest scoreless inning streak since 1920. Uh, He is just the fourth pitcher in the American League or National League history to throw six or more scoreless innings six times in a row. Don Drysdale, Earl Hershiser, Zach Greinke did it. Now, unfortunately for him, his next start is in Coors Field. Now, the Rockies aren't any good, but it is still Coors Field. It's a very difficult place to try to continue a scoreless streak, but maybe it'll happen. Uh, I didn't realize until just a second, this is already the second time we've talked about Zach Gatlin, who was originally a Cardinals prospect, but the Diamondbacks are kind of interesting. Like, for the last year or two, I feel like they've been, like, the most anonymous team in baseball. They're never good, but they're never bad enough to focus on. They're just sort of there, and they're 25-19 and 19 in the second half. You know, I like a lot about what they're doing behind the scenes. Like, they hired Brent Strom from Houston, and he's helped the pitching staff a lot. They have the second lowest chase rate for their batters behind the Dodgers. Like, not chasing is one of the best things you can do, and it's number one Dodgers, number two Diamondbacks. They have the third youngest lineup, and there's some really interesting guys here. Like, they have the number one defense in baseball right now by outs above average. Christian Walker, who was my guy the week you were on vacation, so you didn't hear me talk all about him, is the number one first baseman. Do you realize Dalton Varsho? Catcher outfielder Dalton Varsho is the number one outfielder in outs above average. And he made to save Gallon's streak, I think the last time out. It's an amazing catch. And it was one of those beautiful times where the eye test and the numbers matched. Like visually, it looked great. And then it came out a 5% catch probability, which is like chef's kiss. Uh, they've also got a ton of young outfielders who aren't Dalton Varsho. Alec Thomas is up. Jake McCarthy is up. Corbin Carroll right now is tied with Bobby Witt Jr. For the fastest player in baseball. They still have problems. The bullpen stinks. There's a lot of lineup holes. But for the first time in a while, I've been like watching Diamondbacks games and thinking there's there's something happening here. Yeah. I mean, you, Jake McCarthy, who I think you mentioned, like, in my head you mentioned him. Um, he's like in our latest Rookie of the Year poll, which publishes tomorrow on MLB.com. Uh He's like he's like fourth, and like he's a player I didn't even think of until like two weeks ago, and now he's like, oh, he has a 125 OPS plus, and like the peripherals aren't like 
necessarily great, but they're not bad. And it's like, oh, this guy's suddenly interesting and like kind of like an anonymous, like good Diamondback. The, the Diamondbacks used to specialize in guys like this. They were like a, an overachieving team for like a decade with like a bunch of guys you never heard of who, t- who turned out to be better than you thought they were. Um, so good for them. They've been playing well for a while. The Gallon thing is awesome. Um, I actually, I just looked it up. He actually, first career, and this gives me some hope, he has a 2.03 ERA in Five starts at course, five career starts at course field, including last year, he had seven scoreless innings in a start at course field. So it gives me some hope that um, Zach Allen could uh, continue his streak. It's like when I first saw the streak reported, I saw it's referred to as like the second longest in Diamondbacks history. And I was like, huh, that's pretty good. But like that also seems really long. And I looked and it just so happens that like Brennan Webb is seventh on the all-time list and Zach Allen is now eighth. So it's like actually eighth of all time is more impressive than second in in franchise history. I mean, if you look at the all-time list, it's Hershiser at 58 and then number two and number three are Don Drysdale and Bob Gibson in 1968, the year of the pitcher. Like, no one has gotten to above um, 50 innings, 50 scoreless innings um, since Hershiser, and he's the only guy to do it since they lowered the mound. So, like, this is pretty cool. It's pretty interesting. There's a lot of, like, you know, we've got Gallon with his streak. We've got Paul Goldschmidt chasing the Triple Crown. We've got uh, Albert Pujols going for 696 or 700 home runs. Aaron Judge, obviously. There's, like, a lot of cool stuff going on in terms of, like, milestone chases in baseball right now. Yeah, I think I think Hershiser was fifty nine innings, but I remember that only because I was a Dodger fan growing up in the nineteen eighties. Here's the real question for you. So as we said, Gallon's gonna face the Rockies on Sunday afternoon. Did you ever in your life think to yourself that on Sunday afternoon in September, first Sunday of football season, you're super excited to watch a Diamondbacks Rockies game? Because I think that's gonna be the game I'm focusing on the most. As someone who's not that interested in the NFL anymore, like, yes, kind of. Actually, I might be more interested in the U.S. Open final that day. But uh, oh, okay. I, I will be checking in on Zach Allen. I, I definitely, I'm, I'm, ex- I'm excited about this. Like, it's a, it's a cool, and I, like you, the Hershiser thing happened in some of my formative baseball years. And my, I remember my dad, he'd spend time in L.A. And like, he'd been, he was in L.A. He used to tell me stories. He, like, went to a Dodgers game during Drysdale streak, and he was in L.A. when the streak was broken. So, like, that, like, always had an allure in my mind. So when Hershiser did it in 88 in one of, like, my formative baseball fandom years, um, I'm really going down memory lane on this episode today. Um, it always it always stood out to me. So that, 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 that record has always been, like, one of the cooler baseball records in my mind. I'm going to break every podcast rule because nobody else can see me do this except for Matt and Alex, our producer. I have a baseball here with Oral Hershiser's face on it and printed on it. I guess it's reversed for you guys in the camera. It says 59 scoreless innings. Apparently, I've been carrying this baseball around for 30 or so years, and that number has been implanted into my brain. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to come back and finish off with a couple of guys we should talk more about. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike Petrillo and Matt Myers. Each week, our favorite thing to do is focus on a guy we should be talking about more. I am digging deep for my guy. He made his Major League debut on August 30th. He's thrown all of two and two-thirds innings in three Major League games. He is Cubs reliever Jeremiah Estrada. And I swear there's a reason for this. I promise I will get to it in just a second. He was a sixth round pick in 2017 out of Palm Springs High School, but due to Tommy John surgery and the lost COVID pandemic year, entering last year, he'd only thrown 16 professional innings. But at three levels this year, he struck out 78 in 41 in the third innings. And then he came up, as I said, last week. 
And if you were to just look at the stats, you'd say, okay, well, two and two-thirds innings, a home run, two earned runs. The Cubs aren't that interesting. Big deal. There are a couple of metrics that you can look at, like, right away and see something's interesting. On opening day, Felix Bautista was that guy. You could see right away that they're in, the movement on his fastball is like, wow. Jeremiah Estrada's fastball is kind of off the charts. If you were to look at the least inches of drop, so like most rise, least drop, however you want to look at it, uh, the, the names on the top nine of guys if they're in at least 44 seamers are incredible. Right, number one is Pete Fairbanks, who nobody talks about, but he's having a monster year for Tampa Bay. Number two is Felix Bautista, and number three is Jeremiah Estrada, right? And then under that, it's like Dylan Cease and Liam Hendricks and Garrett Cole. And if you get a chance, go look up the game he pitched against Toronto last week, particularly the plate appearance against Danny Jansen. The fastballs he threw were on a rope. Like, they are unhittable. He throws them 97. It's not quite as hard as Bautista, but there's a lot of similarities here. And for a Cubs team that's been kind of lost in the woods, they've actually played a little bit better the last couple of weeks. And I, I think it's pretty clear this winter they need to go out and spend big, and I hope they will. But you can't build a World Series winner just with free agents. You know, you need some internal guys. And Jeremiah Estrada with that fastball that nobody else has outside of like two guys might be part of the next good Cubs team. Mike picking a random reliever no one's ever heard of. I feel like we're back to normal on this podcast. <laughs> it's good to be good to be home. Um, my guy is um, also a rookie, but with a little bit more of a pedigree, and that's George Kirby, right-handed pitcher for the Mariners. As I mentioned, I think on our last episode we did together, when I was out in Los Angeles a couple weeks ago, I went to a Mariners-Angels uh, game, and, and Kirby pitched in that game. And before the game, I was talking to Daniel Kramer, our Mariners beat reporter, and he said, oh, you'll love watching Kirby pitch. He doesn't walk anyone. And I sort of just like – I was like, yeah, I kind of knew that uh, – Kirby like was like wasn't super overpowering, you know, threw a lot of strikes. Like I, I knew the general profile, but like man, he doesn't really walk anyone. His three point two percent three percent walk rate is second among starting pitchers. Only Corey Kluber is better. And in the top ten of the pitchers with the lowest walk rate, it's names like the names you want to be. It's Aaron Nola, it's Kevin Gossman, it's Max Fried, it's Justin Verlander, it's Vax Scherzer. Um, and of that group, his K percentage. Minus his walk percentage is better than better than Max Freed. It's basically the same as Justin Verlander. The game I went to, in fact, not surprisingly, 5.2 innings pitched, seven strikeouts, one walk. This might be my favorite George Kirby stat in his rookie year. He's not walked more than one batter in any of his 20 starts, which is like pretty incredible to me. Um, and like, where there's been a lot of hype around Spencer Strider as the best rookie pitcher. And to be clear, Spencer Strider is having a better year. We actually did our rookie of the year watch. I went into it thinking I was going to vote for Michael Harris second. I was like, you know what? I think I have to vote for Spencer Strider. Um, but among rookies with starting pitchers with at least 50 innings pitched, only Strider has a lower ERA and FIP than George Kirby, who's like been like a sneaky reason for the, the Mariners' success this year. He's been really good, really reliable, really consistent. He's actually a first-round pick in 2019 out of Elon. I think it might now be Elon University. You think it used to be Elon College, but I think it's now Elon University. Um, but he's originally from uh, Rye, New York, which is in Westchester County outside New York City. Went to Rye High School. Was actually originally drafted by the Mets in the 32nd round, but did not sign. And uh, obviously that has worked out very well for the Mariners. Um, George Kirby been a, been a breakout rookie for them. You know, if not for Adley Rutschman, there's a chance the, the, the Mariners could have had 1-2 in rookie of the year voting in the AL, just like in the NL, it's probably going to be two Braves, 1-2 uh, in Strider and Harris. 
I have two George Kirby thoughts, and the first one is really has nothing to do with him. It's just me being super pedantic here. So you mentioned that uh, he set that MLB record by throwing 24 consecutive strikes. I actually didn't mention that. I meant to mention it, but thank you for mentioning oh, it. Oh, well, I'm reading your notes then. He, that's a thing he did. On August 24th against the National, he set an MLB record by throwing 24 consecutive strikes to start a game. He did, and credit to him. I think that that is, um, let's see, a, a kind of BS way to measure these things because it's not pitches in the strike zone, right? Because like he threw pitches off the strike zone and like CJ Abrams like went after one and happened to tap it for an out. If I, like strikes are strikes, I get why they do. That's just me being annoying. He is really interesting to me because in the middle of the season this year, he completely changed the kind of pitcher he is. Like it's super cool to see this happening in real time. He started throwing a sinker in early July and then he started changing his cutter into more of a slider so that they would play off each other horizontally, like a little bit of the Logan Webb starter kit kind of thing there. And for two pitches, he didn't really throw earlier in the year. In his his last start, he was over 50% sicker slider. So if you look at his first half ERA, 378. His second half ERA, 218. Like, that's so cool for a rookie halfway through his, his season, not even, like, waiting for the winner to say, oh, I'm going to start throwing new pitches, and it's going to work for me. Like, that's monumentally impressive to me. He He's not a guy I would want to face in the playoffs, which the Mariners are going to make this year. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think there was talk early on of like, oh, between him and Logan Gilbert, who I don't know if sure Logan Gilbert still, I don't think rookie, he still has rookie eligibility. So. Um, it was like, oh, are we going to try and manage their innings? But obviously they're not going to do that now. And those guys are going to end up being a big part of their rotation um, or at least pitch meaningful innings um, if they get to, when they get to the postseason. All right, that'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.